0: Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley Podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Our guest today is a legend. He and his company was just awarded a $2.6 billion contract by NASA to get this, put a robot on the moon. And that is just one of a whole series of incredible projects that Naveen Jain is up to in the world today. Naveen is the biggest thinker I know, and I've met a lot of major thinkers. But what I like about Naveen is how he started With such humble roots as an immigrant from India who moved to the United States, started a series of companies, raised incredible children. He has three kids who have graduated from Ivy League universities and are up to incredible businesses of their own. And Naveen went on to start a string of companies, not the least of which is Moon Express the one that just won that contract from NASA. Naveen's other company is Viob, which is actually disrupting healthcare by creating personalized medicine based on, get this, your gut bacteria. So Naveen, Jain, welcome to the Mind Valley podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Vishen. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here.
0: There are so many incredible things where we could take this conversation, Naveen. But you know, the biggest thing I admire about you is really how you think. You wrote a book called Moonshots, and it's about your ideas and your ability to expand visions, to be so, so, so massive that people rally around that vision. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about Moonshots and this book that you've written.
1: Vishan, moonshots are really these audacious ideas that most people on the surface believe are impossible. And the minute we start to believe something is impossible, it becomes impossible for us and no one else. So the idea of moonshots was, how do we start getting people the tools and the thinking and the mindset for them to be able to go out and solve these problems that have been waxing the humanities for generations to come? And there has never been a time in the human history where individuals and a small group of people are capable of doing things that were only done by nation states or even superpowers. And that is the power of exponential technologies. And the second thing this book covers really is about the Most people are afraid to do things because they always say, I know nothing about this industry or I know nothing about this problem. And essentially, it turns out that the less you know, the better the chances you'll be able to disrupt the industry. Once you become an expert at something, you mostly become useless. And when I say useless, I mean you become an incrementalist. And the best you can do is to incrementally improve it by 10 percent. But you can never change something 10 times or 100 times. If you are an expert, that has to come from a thinking where someone is willing to challenge the foundation of what you've taken it for granted. And a lot of the things really around solving the problem is how you think about it. Are you thinking from the mindset of scarcity or are you really thinking from the mindset of abundance? Are you really thinking that abundance can actually be created from conservation or can it actually only be created by creation? And all of these thoughts really come down to how you ask the question. What is it that you're trying to do? If you don't have clarity of thought, you always end up solving the wrong problem.
0: Okay, so what intrigues me about you is the scale of what you're trying to do. I mean... Wow. Like, I'm so, so, so impressed by what just happened with that NASA contract your company, Moon Express, just got. But while running Moon Express, you're also building up Viome, which is a fascinating company. Tell us about
1: Viome. So if you think about it, right, why is it that the more money we are spending on healthcare, the sicker the people are getting? At least in the United States, It is completely the wrong incentive. We have a healthcare system in this country where everyone makes money when you are sick and no one makes money when you are healthy. In fact, our healthcare system was primarily designed to get rid of these infectious diseases because that's the time we were all dying from these infectious diseases. Today, we have these chronic diseases and, you know, we give these names such as depression and the anxiety and obesity and diabetes and Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and autoimmune diseases and cancer. All of these diseases, all of the chronic diseases fundamentally have one thing in common, which is a low-grade chronic inflammation. And this low-grade chronic inflammation comes from the imbalance of the gut. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time because to me, not knowing anything about medicine and the things that I learned as I went on this journey were absolutely fascinating. And I want to share some of those learnings with the audience here because I never thought of us as humans as really basically a container for microorganisms. And here is what surprised me, Vishen. You know, we always told from the time we are born our genes are our destiny. That means the genes, the DNA that we get from a mom and dad really defines who we are. And it turns out the DNA that we get from a mom and dad only express about 22,000 genes. Now, imagine this. The earthworm has 30,000 genes. And if that doesn't give us any inferiority complex, I don't know what will, right? But here's a very interesting thing. The reason we humans are so complex and able to do so much is we have 40 trillion organisms in our gut. That's 40 trillion. And just to give this number some perspective, there are nine billion people on planet Earth. And if you had 5,000 Earth, all the human beings combined live inside each one of us. And these organisms combined actually produce somewhere between 2 million to 20 million genes. So now if you think about that, we are basically less than 1% human. And everything that happens in our body in terms of how we process food, how the nutrients are absorbed, and how we actually become healthy or we become sick is a lot to do with how these organisms, the microorganisms, the kind of biochemicals they release and how our body and the immune system reacts to
0: it. From what I know, Naveen, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, we are roughly yeah. 3% non-human bacteria cells, right?
1: No, 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 no. If you look at the number of cells, we have actually more foreign cells in our body than the human cells.
0: Yes, we have more foreign cells, but I mean in terms of mass, we are around 3 to 4% non-human in terms of mass. That's correct. Got it. So, and what you're doing over there is really creating a new form of preventative medicine that works by ensuring that our microbiome is healthy.
1: So it's very interesting. So when we started to look at and saying, if you look at any literature, and many of you people can just Google it. If you said depression and microbiome, anxiety and microbiome, pancreatic cancer and microbiome, the liver cancer and microbiome, the colorectal cancer, autoimmune diseases, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, pick a name you want, Alzheimer and Parkinson's, there is thousands and thousands of research paper that clearly show how microbiome in our gut is responsible for that.
0: It's incredible how powerful an impact it has on every dimension of our health, yet most doctors don't really talk about it because the science is so new. Now, speaking of that, you tend to go into really new industries and create leading-edge companies. You've told us about Viome, and for those of you who are listening and you want to check it out, go to viome.com, Viome, and you can get a kit from them that will basically let you get personalized recommendations on how to be healthy based on your microbiome. Would that be correct, Naveen?
1: Yes. So basically what we do is we analyze everything, not just who these organisms are, but we look at what these organisms are doing. And based on that, we can tell you exactly what food you need to avoid and why, and what food you should be eating and why. So for example, for me, it says don't eat apple or don't eat spinach. And it is completely counterintuitive. And that is what changes your life because If you're not able to digest it properly or you're feeding the wrong set of organisms, you're going to bound to get sick and you're going to get inflamed.
0: So here's what's really interesting, right? I would be so skeptical of this. But one week ago, I was interviewing our mutual friend, Dave Asprey. And you know Dave Asprey, right? Of Bulletproof Exact. So Dave Asprey just appeared. I believe it was Men's Health magazine. And they had this incredible picture of him without a shirt on. And he's 50 and he was completely ripped. Dave Asprey is now 10.1% body fat. It shows how close friends we are that actually know his body fat percentage up to one week ago. But here's what Dave said. When I asked Dave, what are you doing? He mentioned a lot of things. He's doing strength training, he's eating well, but he says, I'm taking care of my gut bacteria. And he said that was one of the biggest things he's doing. He's optimizing his metabolism by taking care of his gut bacteria. So anyway, this is real stuff, people. I want you to look into it. But he's a volume customer. He is a volume customer. Okay, right. Well, that explains it. That explains it. So if you guys have checked out Dave Asprey's recent apparent health transformation and how fit and amazing he looks, you know that part of it is taking care of your gut bacteria. Now, the second thing I wanted to ask you is tell us about Moon Express. Firstly, congratulations on that huge, huge, huge deal with NASA. But in your words, what is Moon Express attempting to do?
1: Going to the moon, most people think that why do you want to spend time and resources going to the moon or going to the Mars or doing any of the space exploration when there are so many problems facing humanity on planet Earth? And anytime when you're given a choice, it's not about do you do this or you do that? You actually do both. Because at the end of the day, all of us as humanity, the nine billion of us, live on a single spacecraft we call planet Earth. Now imagine, if our spacecraft gets damaged because we get hit by an asteroid, it's not that the planet won't survive, it is that humanity may not survive, that means, All of us could become dinosaurs. And if you could hear any dinosaur rolling in their grave, they would be saying if they had one good entrepreneurial dinosaur, they would be actually be rowing on the moon or the Mars or the beyond, right?
0: You're right. It's like we back up our computers in the cloud on external hard drive in case something happens to our computer. But there is no backup for the human race.
1: And that was the idea is that it's not about just simply going to the moon because it's going to be touristy and it's because somebody can go there for a couple of days and come back. It is about how do we create a multi-planetary society? And while we are doing it, can we actually look at the resources that are available beyond our planet and to be able to make the life better on planet Earth? So, for example... A small quantity of helium-3, which is an isotope of helium, that is extremely rare on planet Earth, is in abundance on the moon. And if we can bring the helium-3 to the planet Earth, we could take a fusion reactor and take a small quantity of helium-3 that could power this planet for generations to come, completely renewable resource and completely radiation-free, a completely non-radioactive, right? And I know that a lot of the people probably thinking, you say, did he just say fusion? Does he not know that there is no fusion reactor? Well, sir, there is no helium-3 either, right? But the fact is, you always want to be where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. Today, you have to start thinking about in the next five to 10 years, we are going to have a fusion reactor. And at that time, someone is going to say, hey, does someone have helium-3? And you want to be the guy say, yep, got (laughs) helium-3,
0: I like that. Okay, Naveen, how does your vision, your vision for backing up the human race through space exploration, how is that different from what Elon Musk is trying to do?
1: Look, all of us are on the same mission. How do we get the humanity to become a multi-planetary society? And now Elon is talking about going to the Mars. Now, the problem is that living on the moon and the living on the Mars have very similar set of problems, which is extremely high radiation, low gravity, and to a large extent, the large temperature difference between day and night. Now, even if you want to live on the Mars, the best place to perfect the technology is actually on the moon while you're still three days away. So as I say to Elon, it's better to be a lunatic three days away than to be a Martian six months or nine months away. The moon is a stepping stone to anywhere you want to go. And secondly, moon can also become the essentially a stopping fuel station. So you don't have to carry all the fuel from planet Earth and you can refuel yourself on the lunar orbit. And once you start to get people to start thinking about how to live on the moon, and that's one thing I was maybe spend the next couple of minutes about. When people say living on the moon or the Mars, people think it. how can you possibly live? The human race is not designed to live anywhere but planet Earth. And I think reframing that question to simply asking yourself what technologies need to be developed to live on the moon, suddenly you start thinking about what needs to be done. So for example, the first thing people will say, well, okay, fine, if you want to live on the moon, how can humans live on high radiation? And then suddenly you start to realize that there are bacteria that actually thrives in radioactive nuclear waste. That means nature has figured out how to protect its DNA from extremely high radiation and use the radiation as a source of energy. Now, there is no doubt we can take the bacterial genes from these bacteria and actually use CRISPR to modify the human genes in vivo And then suddenly the humans can become completely radiation resistant. And I know some people are thinking that CRISPR is not quite ready yet. And the fact is CRISPR is well on its way in the next three to five years, we'll be able to modify the human genes, not just in vitro, but in vivo. That means inside the human beings rather than simply on a petri dish. And once we are able to do that, we can become the radiation resistant. That means it is a technology that's already working. You don't have to solve that problem. The second thing people say is, well, how are you gonna grow the food on the moon? And that I think is a wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is, why do we eat food? Because if you ask that question, you will realize that the only reason we eat food is because we need energy and we need nutrition. And we say, okay, if you need energy, can we drive energy from radiation or can we drive energy like photosynthesis, like plants do?
0: I'm laughing because I'm so excited by how you think. You truly question everything and your mind works super fast and you are so knowledgeable of exponential technology. And it almost seems as if you can see how these different trends and future tech are going to coincide and then build a world for that future.
1: That is the only way you can make progress in life is not look at the world as is, is start to focus on what the world can be. So when everyone would say that Steve Jobs has a distorted reality field, what they really mean is he can see clearly and we cannot see what he sees. In fact, we have a distorted reality field, not him.
0: And I got to share this with the audience. I didn't mention this in the beginning, but how you and I know each other is that both of us were on the innovation board for Peter Diamandis' XPRIZE. And between 2012 and 2017, when I was on the board, we would go every year on an innovation trip to visit one of America's most innovative areas. I remember we visited the Mojave Space Station. We ended up visiting robotic labs in Boston. We visited synthetic biology labs in San Diego and AR and VR laboratories in Silicon Valley all over a span of five years. And it was so exciting being on these adventures with you, discovering and looking at all of these technologies and how they were about to explode and change the world.
1: that's absolutely true. I mean, the technology is moving at such a pace, it is hard to even fathom what it is going to be in the next five years or 10 years. What people don't realize that in the next 10 years, there's going to be more innovation than we saw in the last 500 years. The humanity is going to fundamentally change how we live our lives. Our healthcare is going to be completely reinvented. Our education system is going to be completely reinvented. Our food is going to be in abundance. Now, the interesting thing is this mindset of scarcity and abundance, you have to also start to think about is that why do we believe that things have value and why is it that we fight over things that actually are only in finite quantity on planet earth but could be in abundance everywhere else right so people think that the reason we believe that things have value that it doesn't matter how much we have we will fight over it because human beings are greedy and my thinking is that humans are actually very generous that generosity is built into our dna because we realize as a part of evolution, that we only survive when we are fellow tribe survived. When they died, we died. To some extent, today, when we are enjoying a sports game, 70,000 of us could sit in a sports arena and never fight over air. We never slap the person next to us and say, hey, stop breathing. You're taking my air. Why is it? because we believe the air is in abundance, the oxygen is in abundance. What if the energy was the next air? Now imagine, every 90 minutes, more solar energy falls on planet Earth than we actually are able to use in the whole year. Now someday we'll be able to come up with the technology to be able to convert that into usable form, whether it is two years from now or five years from now. There is no doubt, We'll be able to create abundance of energy that it will become the next air, that means it's going to be democratized to everyone and it's going to be demonetized for everyone, that means it's going to be free for everyone. Now imagine if the food could become the next air. What if the water became the next air? And you start to think another concept that I was going to bring in here that I think people may like is that almost everything you do. You have to start asking yourself as an entrepreneur that when you're solving a problem, are you solving the symptom of the problem or are you actually solving the root cause of the problem? And I want to give one example that I really think it will bring this point home. So, for example, everyone knows that the lack of fresh water on our world is really a big problem. And the entrepreneur might want to say, look, I want to go solve this problem. I want to create some nanotechnology that will be able to desalinize the water, to be able to take the water from the air and on and on and on. Until you start to realize that if the question you were to ask is why is there a shortage of fresh water, you will realize that majority of fresh water is actually used for agriculture. And then you start to think, oh, what if we can build aeroponic agriculture, aquaponic, hydroponic agriculture, and suddenly we now will have plenty of fresh water if we can just reinvent agriculture. And as you're going down the path, if you ask the question, why do we have all this agriculture, you will realize that majority of agriculture is actually used to feed the cattle. And that means now if people want to eat meat, what if you can grow the Muscle tissues, that's all we need to eat anyway from a stem cell, just like the nature does. Take a single cell instead of making eyes and ears and the whole animal, what if you only grew the muscle tissues and then suddenly by doing that, you freed up all that agriculture and now you can have twice as many people on planet Earth than you initially thought was possible just by simply rethinking what you could do with the technology we already have at our disposal.
0: And what you're talking about is 3D printed meat,
1: or actually more like synthetic biological meat, which is taking a stem cell and really creating a bio to create tissues.
0: Wow, that's an incredible train of thought. Now, in your book, there's this line, which I really love. So I'm referring to the book Moonshots. And you say this, Naveen. you said, here's the irony. Launching a moonshot, while certainly challenging, can actually be easier than starting a smaller company based upon a less ambitious goal. And what many people dismiss as crazy might actually be well within reach. History is replete with examples. Whether your particular moonshot is figurative or literal, the same principles and mindsets apply. So I find that fascinating. You're actually saying that when we think moonshot, we often sometimes have a competitive advantage. And then I remember hearing you speak at Consumer Health Summit last year, and your talk blew me away. I remember opening up my memo on my iPhone and recording you. And there was something you said, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember it perfectly, that there was something you said that was fascinating. You basically said when one thinks big, they have an advantage. Because when you think so big, the smartest people want to work with you because smart people don't want to work on small problems. And when you think big and when you talk about what you are about to do, you give investors FOMO because investors want to invest in people who solve big problems. And then when the investors run to you, you can tell them, I don't need your money because you have such a vast amount of talent and investment coming to you because you were the person bold enough to think to solve something that no one else was seeking to solve. So again, I'm
1: paraphrasing,
0: but I recall you saying something like that.
1: That is correct, Vishen. I mean, so essentially... When you are out there trying to solve these audacious problems, imagine the world's biggest minds, the world's best minds want to be working on the biggest problems because they all have been successful. And now they want to do something that is significant, that's going to change the way people live their lives. And that's exactly what happens. And I think the example that I gave Vishen at that time was really about my current company, that when I said I want to create a company whose sole purpose would be to create a world where illness could be an option, that means where the disease can be a choice rather than people thinking it's a bad luck. And when I announced that, the head of the Watson Research call and say, hey, that is a problem I want to be working on. I can bring you all the artificial intelligence technology. Some of the best minds in the genetics, I'm no expert on genetics, the best minds on genetics who were working for Craig Venter left their company and came and joined. The scientist who was working at the Los Alamos National Lab on a biodefense technology said, look, this is a problem we solved to understand what makes these organisms produce. We know what they are producing, and we know what is making the human body sick. We can work together. He quit his federal job, and we were able to get an exclusive license to the technology from the federal lab. You know why? They gave us an exclusive license because we were focused on solving the problem that could fundamentally help billions of people live a disease-free life. And when they heard that, they say, you know what, that is why we develop these technologies so we can make the humanity better. And if that's what's your goal, we're going to give the exclusive license to you. But my point I'm trying to make is... If I was simply saying I want to build an app to find a roommate, nobody would have come to me. When you start to say that is the kind of problem you want to solve, and that's where everybody in the universe start to coalesce around the problem and solve it. And that's one reason, by the way, it's just not me. Look at Elon. Why is that Tesla is worth more than Ford and GM? Not because they produce all these cars that GM produces in a week, as more cars than tesla produces in the whole year but they are valued more because of the problem that elon is trying to solve can we get rid of the fossil fuel from the planet earth and when you start to look at these massive problems people come around to help you solve those problems whether it is you know spacex being valued at 30 billion dollars, not because they make all this money, is because he's trying to save humanity from potential extinction. And by the way, that is the same thing you look at Jeff Bezos. Here is a man who is going out there and not just disrupting one industry, but disrupting tens of industries. You know, Richard Branson, why is it that he's able to go into 30 industries and make every industry successful? Is because. He doesn't think that he's an expert in any one of them. He's an expert in simply identifying what is the pain point for the consumers that he cares enough about solving.
0: That is such a beautiful way of helping us understand what makes visionary thinkers like you, Branson, Elon, function the way they do. But where does the average person get started? I mean, If you're starting a business, most people are not looking to colonize Mars, right? Or the moon or to disrupt medical care. What lessons from your book, Moonshots, could they extract to help them on their path? Well,
1: first of all is that, you know, the Moonshots is about how you think. And as I was talking about it, understanding are you solving the symptom or are you solving the root cause? Understanding that Are you actually looking at the world as is and thinking there is a scarcity or are you really thinking levels ahead of what technologies are coming up and what will be the secondary and tertiary impact of those technologies, right? So for example, it's very easy to see how self-driving cars are going to disrupt the automotive industry. Everyone can see that the ownership of the car no longer needs to be there because these self-driving cars will come whenever you need and whatever car you need. What people don't realize is that that fundamental technology can also disrupt many other industries. For example, when these cars are self-driving, they're communicating with each other. That means they can now drive much closer to each other. That means we don't have to build as many roads. And now suddenly, what happens to the construction industry? Now, imagine you're living in Manhattan and you're living in these large cities. If you don't need the car right in the same building where you are, and they can come on demand whenever you need them, do you still need the parking lots or could those parking lots become affordable housing? And if they become affordable housing, what happens to real estate prices? Now, suddenly the premier spots in the most prime spaces will become the housing. And then suddenly the prices of houses will collapse. As you start to look at virtual reality, what if you don't even have to be in the same location at the same time? Whereas essentially you can create a virtual environment where people from all over the world can exactly be in the same space and experience each other exactly how they would when they are next to each other. That means they are able to shake hands. They are able to actually touch and feel the things. And they actually work together as if they are in the same environment. Because our brain does not know the difference between what is real and what is being created. In fact, you and I both have probably seen many of these virtual reality games. And a game that really terrifies most people is a game called Ledge. You step up about a step and a half on this ledge and you put the virtual reality glasses on and suddenly you are 70 story high and the elevator breaks. And now you have to take a step off the elevator and you're looking down that you have to take off and 70 story. Even though your brain knows that you took a step and half, you take a step and you cannot find any ground. People scream because they cannot know how to take a step. Brain gets fooled to think you can actually take that step. Brain doesn't know that what you're seeing in virtual reality is not the reality.
0: I've experienced that game and I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yes.
1: And my point I'm saying is that even when people used to say, I will believe it when I see it. Interesting thing is our human vision is so limited. In a sense, we see such a small wavelength of light. We hear such a small wavelength of audio. If we are able to enhance our auditory cortex or visual cortex, and we are able to see the infrared, we are able to hear the ultrasound, and someone who is able to do that and tells you and I, hey, I'm hearing Taylor Swift, can you hear it? And you all look at this person and say, I think this person is a cuckoo. There is no sound playing here now he may not be a cuckoo it may be us who are actually not able to hear that it happens to all of us someone says hey do you see this and if we can't see it we all think he is a cuckoo but the point is it is that human power that means brain doesn't know what is being created what if these people can enhance their brain to be able to see more hear more? And would they be more conscious than we are? And how are they going to treat us when there is a super conscious person, a super human? How would they treat human? Would they treat us just like we treat animals because somehow we believe they're less conscious than us?
0: Right. That's a good question. So I want to try to understand this about you. You think big, for sure. You are the moonshot guy, along with men like Elon Musk, right? I know very few people who think that big that there's something else which I've noticed about you in the 5 or 6 years we've known each other which really earned my respect and it's how you raise and treat your children. I remember asking you once because you've got 3 kids who graduated from Ivy League universities and went on to become incredibly successful such as Ankor your son who started the Kairos Society where he brings together the top students from colleges all around the world into a network to groom them as leaders, as global leaders, would that be a correct way of describing it?
1: That is absolutely correct. And he started that when he was 17 years old. And today, after he graduated from Wharton, he started a company that he sold that company. And now he's focused on solving the middle-class affordability problem. Think about it, 28-year-old kid is thinking about affordable housing, affordable childcare, affordable senior care, and really rethinking the way people should be thinking about. You know, he says that college graduate when they graduate, even if they can afford a rent, they have no money saved to put the deposit. Why do we need the deposit? Can we actually come up with a $5 a month insurance so you just add that to the rent and the deposit is insured?
0: I love the fact that Ankur is tackling a problem like this, but I remember sitting with you on a bus once and I said, Naveen, what's the deal? Your kids are all so brilliant. What did you do differently? And you mentioned two things. And I guess I remembered that conversation, even though it happened four years ago, because I'm a father too. And back then my son was six. Now, the first thing you said, and I want you to go deeper. The first thing you said was since Ankur was six years old, when you would go to networking events, you would bring him with you and just let him roam the room. And then the second thing you said is you did not allow your kids to start a for-profit business until after they graduated college. They had to think nonprofit before they graduated college. Is that
1: correct? Yeah, so there are several things that actually, from my perspective, that really helped shape who they become. First was this whole definition of what success is. The first thing we told them was that your success will never be measured by how much money you have. Your success will be measured by how many lives you are able to improve. And the day you become humble is the day you become successful. If you still have iota of arrogance left in you, that means you're still trying to prove something to yourself or someone else you'll never be successful the second part of the whole thing is that your self-worth never comes from what you own it comes from what you create even if you own a lot but you have done nothing, you're still a parasite on humanity. That's really the idea is then a lot of people who come from rich family, when you look at the people in Middle East, you know, they own so much, but they really have no self-worth because they haven't created anything, right? And that to me is the key. And you know, from a parenting perspective, that really shaped who they became was they always focused on what can they do to improve the lives of millions of people, billions of people, because that is how their success is gonna be defined. You know, from our side, we separated a couple of things that I thought was very interesting. We always told them that our love for you is unconditional, but our approval is not. Difference is that they don't never have to worry about do we love them, but they always have to worry about are they doing things that we are proud of? That means they have to earn our approval. They don't have to earn our love. Another thing that I really think that I think most people forget is that when we are parents, it's somehow we feel that it's our job to take them to the water and make them drink. And I really think that changing that perspective instead to make them thirsty, that if you can make your children thirsty, then they will find their own water and they will drink. And the best way to create that thirst is to make them intellectually curious. And I really believe the only way we know the society can move forward is when we create the human beings that are intellectually curious. In my way of thinking, the day you stop becoming intellectually curious is the day you die, you become a zombie. And to me, the curiosity is what allows you to constantly think about what is possible. And that is one thing we have to constantly think about, what we can do with our children or even the employees or even the people we interact with. You know, I think you were referring to the part about tactically. When these kids were young, I'll take them to the office, I'll take them to the board meeting, I'll take them to the business dinners. I wanted them to see their dad at work or what is going on. And a lot of the people feel embarrassed about doing that. I remember only once or twice I would be at a business dinner and somebody would mention, hey, I thought this was going to be a business dinner, not a social dinner. And I would always tell them, I said, look, I'm having a dinner with my son. And if that is a problem, we can go sit on the other table and you guys can have a chit chat. And because I want him to be spending time with me. And if that's a problem, you guys can go have your own dinner.
0: You know, I've learned many things from you, Naveen, that that was probably the biggest lesson I learned from you. Since then, I actually started taking my kid to business dinners. In fact, I started an entire university where parents and kids actually learn together. At Mindvalley University, like you take classes with your child, whether you are 60 and your child happens to be like a teenager or a kid. So that really sparked an interesting insight. It's amazing sitting next to you in a bus and just learning that hack changed the way I parented to a fundamental degree.
1: And the last point I was going to make was that really in terms of creating intellectual curiosity, one thing we did was expose them to different things. And I think this is the part that I really find that most parents go wrong with is that when your kid comes to you and says, you know, I have found my true passion, they are 14 years old, they're 12 years old, they come to you and say, I know what my passion is, I want to pursue that. And you, as a parent, your first instinct is, Oh my God, you found your passion, I want to help you pursue that passion. When that happened to me with my 16 year old daughter, my response was, I'm sorry, sweetie, you're not letting the dad do his job, which is to expose you to many other things because you don't even know what you don't know yet. So, how can you tell them you don't like it? And that conversation changed her life because you know when she came to me wanting to have a passion without realizing and she told me that i have no interest in science and technology and guess what when i told her to go to Singularity university and learn about exponential technologies and she came back and said oh my god i really want to be a neuroscientist and geneticist because that is what's going to allow me to help women and guess what happened when she graduated from stanford she went on to join an artificial intelligence company to empower women to remove the gender bias in hiring. This company called Pymatrix is changing the way we hire people. And just because of this AI tool, the, every company that works with them increases their minority hiring by 300 to 500 percent. And that is unbelievable. And our youngest son is now graduating from Stanford, and he became a Schwarzman scholar. You know, they take 150 kids around the world, and he was selected to go to Tsinghua University and really create these master's programs for changing the way people are going to live their life. And all of this happened not because they were privileged, it's because they realized they have responsibility to help more people than just themselves.
0: Wow. Now, what would be your advice for someone who's starting out, certainly hearing about How you raise your kids is super insightful. And the one thing that I really, really, really love is the idea that your value is not based on how wealthy you are, but on how many lives you actually serve. That is an incredible idea,
1: an incredible definition of success. Vishnu, I just want to be clear here. I am not talking about somehow turning everything that you do into nonprofit. You and I both know if you can help a billion people live a better life, you can create a hundred billion dollar company. I personally believe if you want to do a small good in the world, you start a non-profit. If you want to do a large good in the world, you start a for-profit company because profit is what allows you to scale to help a billion people or else you're going to run out of money before you can help a million people.
0: Agreed. Agreed. For sure. So I want to understand your journey. When you came to the U.S. for the first time as an immigrant from India, what was it that was different about your worldview that you think made you the man who you are today?
1: So first of all, you know, I came to this country and, you know, I didn't have anything. I had five dollars and I didn't speak the language. And our mindset at that time simply was, I am not going to go back and be disappointing to my mom and dad. Remember, approval something I had to earn. That means even though I was making $3 an hour, I was absolutely determined that there is no problem we can't solve, I can't solve. My mom used to always tell me, you know, son, you are bright enough, you can do anything you want, sky is the limit. Now imagine what she was saying. Even though she thought she was putting no limit, There was a physical barrier she saw called sky, and she knew there's no one can go beyond that. She did not know that sky is simply a figment of our imagination. There is no thing called sky. When you go from here to the moon, you don't say, hey, mom, I just passed sky, right? There is no sky. So my point is, the limitations we place on ourselves are self-made. They are made because we can't imagine any further. And that imagination is what puts the limit to it. So to me, it didn't matter where I was, I always believed that I could do it because if anyone could do, I could do it. And that simple mindset thinking that why not me is really allowed me to start doing things that I didn't know anything about. I started working on computers. I have no degree in computers. I start working in space, I have no idea what space is. I work in healthcare because I have no idea about DNA or RNA. And today most people think I'm a doctor. It's because of fundamentally believing that it is possible. or Because I know I can do it. And if you're solving, as we discussed, the audacious problem, the best minds will come to you to help you solve them. Your job is to stay focused on the vision and allow the best people in the world to come and help you. And you constantly challenge them by asking the same two year old, why? Why can't we do it this way? Why can't we do it some other way that will change the way people do the things today? And that thinking is what, as you mentioned Vishen, that at Wyom is allowing us to fundamentally change the healthcare from being a symptom care system to preventing the chronic diseases, to be able to reverse the chronic diseases. And I absolutely, Believe that even though we think we're doing something revolutionary, this is something we knew 2,500 years ago when a Greek doctor named Hippocrates said, All diseases begin in the gut. And he knew there is no such thing as universal healthy food. He said, One man's food is another man's poison. And what did he say at the end? Let food be thy medicine, let thy medicine be the food. What did we forget? And you know, in Ayurveda, this has been around for 5,000 years ago. All we're doing is bringing now the scientific basis to be able to tell you why you should not eat apple or spinach, not that somehow we didn't know the food that are good for us or bad for us. And that way of thinking is what changes everything. And my one request is that to solve big problems, we can't do it alone. We have to rely on people to help us get there. Now, I am really looking to you, Vishan, and the people who are listening to it to help us solve this problem. We need millions of people to really do the test so we can understand what causes people to be sick, because artificial intelligence requires a lot of data. And we are well on our way, but we need help from everyone because everyone who does the test not only benefits themselves, it benefits everyone before them and everyone after them. And Vishen, I don't know if I ever told you or not, and recently my dad passed away. And he didn't have to die. He had a pancreatic cancer, which we knew clearly comes from the gut. And I begged the doctor to say, here's the research. I want you to put an antimicrobial thing in his pancreas. And he said, that's not what we do because that's not a protocol and we won't do it. And I saw him die in my arms. And I told my dad that I can't save you, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that no one else suffers. That these diseases are preventable and we need your help to spread the word so that we can get enough people to come together so we can save humanity from these chronic diseases. Because every one of us knows someone who is suffering from obesity, diabetes, dementia, Alzheimer, depression. So many people losing their life, committing suicide because they're depressed. I hope no one ever have to lose their loved ones because we did not come together. Our generation is the generation that has the technology to fix this problem. And if we can't come together, we will watch our children and grandchildren suffer. So let's not be those people who actually have to see that.
0: I love that rallying cry. I want to quickly ask you about something you touched on just a few moments ago. You said that when one has a big vision, a moonshot vision, it attracts people to want to work with them, to collaborate with them. And that's essentially what you just said. You shared your vision and mobilized our podcast listeners to want to go and collaborate with you. I'd love for you to touch deeper on this. My upcoming book with Penguin next year is called Code of the Extraordinary Team, and it explores team building. And one of the things I talk about is the concept of visionary leadership. I quote, for example, Patty McCord of Netflix, who said something along these lines, empowerment is bullshit. Your people do not have to be empowered. Your people are powerful as soon as they walk in through the door. What you need to do is to give them a way to channel this power. I'd love to get your take on that. How do we use vision to channel people's power, to mobilize people, to gather groups of people together and rally them around this thing that we are trying to do to change the
1: world? Well, this is interesting because the difference between a manager and a leader, manager manages the resources. Leader's job is simple, is to take the people, get the best out of every single person by giving them a cause, by giving them the mission. And once people are aligned with the mission and the cause you stand for, their loyalty is not to you anymore. Their loyalty is to the mission. That means you may or may not be around, but those people will continue to take that torch and move it forward. In fact, I tell my investor that even if we fail as a company, we would move the humanity far enough that somebody is going to come along, take that torch and take it across the finish line. And I would still die a happy man because we were able to move the humanity forward. That means it doesn't have to be us having to solve this problem. Our job is to constantly try to keep pushing the boundaries and take it far enough along that even if we die along the way, somebody else is going to take this thing across the finish line. How do you
0: do this within your companies? Like, how do you cultivate this practice? How do you keep people focused on the vision? And the reason I ask is because sometimes when I try to do that, I get told by some people that, you know, it's too far ahead. No, we need to focus on what is important now.
1: I think it is because you have to be consistent. You cannot one day talk about I need to be making money today. And then tomorrow you go out and say, let's go focus on this mission, right? You have to be consistent about who you are. You have to every day when you talk about what is it that we do, we tell people we are working on things to make disease optional. You can ask anyone in the company what they're working on. They would always say, imagine living in a world where illness is optional. That is what we are working towards. Sure, there are day-to-day challenges you have to constantly deal with, but no one should ever forget why we wake up at 4 a.m. And ask everyone, if they don't wake up at 4 a.m. and jump out of the bed to do what you are asking them to do, then they're working on the wrong company. I always ask my employees, if the day you wake up and you are starting not jumping out of the bed, wanting to do it, call me. I would promise you I'll find you a great job. That'll probably even pay you more because if you're not excited about our vision and our mission, let me help you find your cause. And the way to find your mission is not just simply to find out what your passion is. Passion is for losers. The winners have obsession. If you're not obsessed, about it. If you're not thinking about when you go to sleep and you're not dreaming about it and you don't wake up thinking about it, you're not obsessed about it. Go find your obsession. Don't find your passion. Passion is hobby. If you find your obsession, nothing will stop you from getting there.
0: Wow. Okay. So I like that. I like that. But let's go a little bit deeper. How do we tell the difference between passion and obsession?
1: The passion is something you say, I do because I enjoy it. Obsession is something you do not ever stop thinking about. So I go to sleep thinking about what do I need to do to get rid of these chronic diseases? What do I need to do? I dream about it. I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is read literature about What is the latest technologies available that will allow me to fix this problem, right? Every person I meet, it doesn't matter what walk of life, I'm always thinking, how can they be helpful to our mission? How do I recruit them to my mission of making the disease optional? And every single living moment, you're starting to obsess over it to an extent that even if the world catches fire, you're so focused on that mission that you don't even see it.
0: I love that. I love that. Now, as we come to the end, Naveen, you reminded me of something you said from stage once. This was at Consumer Health Summit about a year ago. You spoke about your bizarre habit of waking up early and getting on Twitter to do research. Could you elaborate more?
1: Yeah, so basically I want to see all the scientific articles and what I do is as opposed to on a Twitter following people and following Trump and figuring out what stupid thing he may have said today. My Twitter feed is all about scientific journals. That means I read every scientific research, every paper that is being published about what is going on. Because every time you read an article and research about completely different industry, it triggers the thought in your mind of how that will apply to what you're doing. And it's amazing to see that many of the breakthroughs that are happening in a completely different industry. It may be in the nanotechnology world will suddenly give you a thought about how that might impact what you're doing with your own business. And that to me is really the first two to three hours in a day, I actually just simply read about the breakthrough research that has come together. And then I start to think about for the next 30, 45 minutes, which one of these things are applicable to what I'm doing and how would I apply that to my current business?
0: I see. Now, was that how you got ideas for businesses as diverse as gut bacteria and moon exploration?
1: Yes, that's exactly what happened is because I was reading all the research papers and they were clear to me that diseases are starting to get linked to gut microbiome. And the next thing that occurred to me is if everyone knows this to be true, then if I'm starting a business, what would I do differently than what other people are doing? Because once something is a common knowledge, you have to start thinking about it and say, why is this problem not getting solved? And that was the breakthrough in asking that question, why is it that this problem not getting solved if everyone knows the gut bacteria is important? And I started to look at that every company that is doing the microbiome testing is focused on who is there, that means they're doing the things like 16S that can only look at the bacteria, but they were missing out on the viruses and the yeast and the fungus and the mold, or some very small companies doing DNA analysis that tells you what can happen. But nobody was actually looking at what these organisms are actually producing because no one had the technology to do the RNA analysis. And when I saw this technology called RNA analysis, the paper being published, from Los Alamos National Lab, that was the breakthrough. I say, ah, now if they are able to do this for biodefense work. Can I apply the technology that allows them to find out if a bad actor were to get hold of something, what is making people sick? And they do this by understanding the biochemical activities of these organisms. Why can't I apply that now to keep the people healthy? And when I saw that research, I reached out to Los Alamos and able to get this license of this technology that became Wyom. So if I was not reading the research paper, I wouldn't be running this company and someday help a billion people live a disease-free life.
0: Now, how do you know? Because there are so many opportunities that come your way. How do you know what to focus on and what to say no to?
1: Yeah, so again, you have to always say, what are you willing to give up to take this? That means you can never take on more. So my philosophy is I only run one company at a time. As soon as I decided that this healthcare is something I want to sink my teeth into, that means I want to dedicate the next 10 years of my life focusing on that. What did I do? On the Moon Express, I hired the CEO, hired the team, and essentially says, go run with it. That means I am simply going to be now in the board and the chairman, but someone else to now have to take this problem and run it across the finish line. And as you know, our first mission to the Moon is going to be launched next year. And, you know, to me... After healthcare, when I believe that, let's assume I want to focus on agriculture to create a food that can essentially be not only high yield, but also be pesticide free, because at the end of the day, the problems are very similar. Can we adjust the microbiome of the soil, which happens to be the gut for the plant, and solve the same problem for the plants? If I do that, I have to say, okay, I am now feel good enough that I have gotten this problem far enough along that I can hire the team to essentially run with it. And I'm going to go focus on agriculture. I'm going to focus on education to completely reinvent education system. But I always have to be ready to give up something to start something new because you cannot do more things at the same time.
0: Now, I remember asking Richard Branson once. I asked Branson, you have so many different companies. How do you know when to focus, when to then pass it on to someone else. And he told me that he would focus a lot on mobilizing great talent. He, like you also said, he would make it about the mission. He also said this though, he says, when a company first starts, he obsessively goes in for three months deep in the company, building it up. What is your modus operandi for this?
1: Richard is amazing and I love him, but The point is I spend more like a year or two just delving into it because to some extent, I am going after a completely brand new industry. Most of the businesses that Richard does is actually disrupting the current market, whether he's creating the Virgin Hotel or the Virgin Airlines. These are the businesses that exist. He just makes them more consumer centric, more efficient, more fun, and something that obsesses over consumers. When you're going after something completely reinventing, whether it is healthcare space, you have to start to delve into it for many years to make sure that you actually bring them to a point where someone else can run. Because very, very hard to find entrepreneurs. It's very easy to find managers.
0: I see what you mean. Right. Very easy to find managers, very hard to find entrepreneurs. So you're saying you go deep in the business for a year or two until you find that right entrepreneur to take over.
1: That's right. Or sometimes it takes three or four years because my goal is to prove that there is no problem from a technological perspective or from engineering perspective or from a business perspective. You have gotten enough proof of evidence. This is a solid business that you can run. And now it's simply about scaling. When the business becomes about scaling, then you can hire people to scale. But it's very difficult to hire people to actually find the business for you.
0: Mm, I see. So as we wrap up, Naveen, what does your average day look like? Like, how do you spend your time?
1: Well, Vishen, finding about how I do is not something anyone should replicate. Because as I always say, most people have this idea of following the habits of other people who have been successful and thinking that by following their habits you can be successful and i think that's a misnomer because for example tony robbins takes ice bath every morning you can take an ice bath three times a day you're not going to become tony robbins you become tony robbins thinking like tony robbins so to me it's about not what i do but how i think is what i think people should be thinking about but To answer your question, I get up every day at 4 a.m. or earlier. I essentially spend a lot of time doing research. I do some of the thing in the mindfulness. I always do the meditation in the morning. And then I always work until about you know 10 o'clock in the night. And before I go to bed, I again do five to 10 minutes of meditation. So to me, it is simply about recapping my day at the end of the day, in the morning, really thinking about what are the two or three things that are just absolutely important that I want to get done today. And really prioritizing what are the top three things that I need to deliver today. And then recapping the end of the day about what is it that I got done, what's left and what I need to be focusing tomorrow. And really to some extent, every minute of my day, Sometimes it is planned and sometimes I leave the time for me to be start thinking about what is it that I'm not thinking straight? Because when you are so deep into the business, you start to look at the trees and you forget the forest. And I really think each one of us has to find some lone time where you're able to look at the big picture because otherwise we get sucked into every day-to-day life and you forget the idea of where you're going.
0: Very true. Very true. I try to take long escapes from my business. I'm going on a six-week trip right now including to Necker Island. And part of it is because I want to go and explore and meet people and get away from the business so I can expand my thinking.
1: Necker is absolutely a beautiful place. Anytime you go there, you meet amazingly great people. And to me, it's just the beautiful warm weather and just the beauty of Necker always gives me a good time to think. It's a good place to spend time to think.
0: Right, so thank you so much, Nadine. This was an incredible interview. I learned so much. And for those of you listening, I hope you took a lot of notes. It is rare to be able to access the mind of a guy who is playing at such a massive level. And I strongly want you to check out Vayom, but also check out Naveen's book, Moonshots. It is truly an incredible book. Naveen, you probably know this, but I was training at PricewaterhouseCoopers to several hundred of their top managers. And I put up a quote from you and I put up Moonshots and I said, everyone at PricewaterhouseCoopers needs to be reading this book.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Vishen. You're very, very kind, and I really admire what you're doing. And I want to make sure that before we end this interview, I thank you because, to some extent, there are not many people who are sincere and dedicated to helping other people. And I want you to know that, having interacted with you for the last seven, eight years, you know, some people can fool you sometimes, but I've seen your dedication and what you're doing at Mind Valley is truly transformational in a way that you're really trying to bring the conscious business on the forefront. You're trying to give people a mindful way of doing things. I admire what you're doing and I want everyone listening to it to know that you don't have to be sitting at midnight almost now and recording this conversation with me if you didn't care about the people who will be listening to it. So to me, I want everyone who is listening to it to please send an email and thank Vishen for what he does. Because but for him, you wouldn't be listening to this or any other interview that he does because he cares about each one of us to make us a better person.
0: Thank you so much, Naveen. That was very, very nice and sincere of you.
1: And I hope everyone who is listening to it, please say thank you email to Vishen for what he does because he's a dedicated man who is actually helping move humanity forward. So thank you, Vishen, for what you
0: do. Thanks, guys. And you can also just leave a review or rating of this podcast. Naveen, thank you so much. It's an honor to be able to reconnect with you and to be able to tap into your mind.
1: Thank you very much, Vishen. It's an honor to be here.